Let's gear up and start the mission. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 24 of the Real Spies, Real Lives podcast. I'm your host, espionage author P.A. Duncan. I hope everyone had a great Thanksgiving and a safe one within your little bubbles. I had two, one on the Thursday of Thanksgiving, and because of work schedules and child custody arrangements, I had a second one with my family that are in my bubble only on Saturday. And we had a lot of fun. The kids, it was warm enough on Thanksgiving. The kids could play outside and the adults played some board games. It was a lot of fun and good food. Great company. I mentioned the weather, that it was so warm. When I was a kid, I grew up on a farm in uh, central Virginia on the east part of the Blue Ridge Mountains. And right around Thanksgiving, right after it usually, every year was when we had this thing called hog killing. My dad did it sort of the old country way. And I old country, I'm referring to Scotland, where people from miles around brought the hogs they've been fattening up all year. And my dad set up an assembly line to slaughter hogs. And the key was the outside temperature had to be cool enough so that the meat wouldn't spoil in a day or in a few hours. And lately, that's been almost impossible for farmers to do. And I honestly, even around here where I live now, which is in a rural part of Virginia, I haven't seen many farmers do that that way anymore. If they have hogs they want to be killed, they send them to a a specialty butcher. But that was always kind of a tradition in our post-Thanksgiving tradition in our family. You might think it's a little gross, but it was kind of an interesting time because, as I said, a lot of the farmers would bring their, their hogs to our place. And there may have been a little bit of whiskey involved in the whole process to stay warm, of course. But it was an interesting time, and I was thinking about it this past Saturday when my grandkids were outside, essentially in short sleeve shirts and shorts, playing on the trampoline in their backyard with, you know, absolutely beautiful weather. So anyway, great Thanksgiving. I hope everybody else's was. Today we're going to read from the final chapters of and Justice for All, the third book in the trilogy, Self-Inflicted Wounds. And this book came out actually two days ago on Tuesday in paperback and as an ebook. And we'll get more into that during our little commercial break in the middle of this. 
So I want to go right ahead and get started with the reading from And Justice for All. We're going to wrap up this book and next week probably we may start on the one that's coming out in February. I'm not quite sure yet what we're going to do. We may discuss how I came up with the characters, my and Alexei and Nelson and some of the others. I don't know yet. <laughs> I'm still kind of flying by the seat of my pants on this, so we'll see. But let me set this up. So the main mission in Yugoslavia that mine Alexei have been working on, the murders of people associated with Slobodan Milosevic, that has wound up. They've completed that part of the mission. They have convinced the opposition candidate to run against Milosevic, and he has lost his election. And in an interesting parallel, he, of course, doesn't accept that loss. But the people of Yugoslavia want him gone. They are ready for him to be gone. So from all over Yugoslavia, they descend on the capital, Belgrade, driving tractors, driving mine trucks, driving bulldozers. And in fact, it's a peaceful revolution. There is some clashing with the police, as would be typical, but it's called the Bulldozer Revolution. And as a result of it, finally, Milosevic concedes that he's lost the election. And the, a man named Kostunak takes over Yugoslavia. I'm not going to get into what happens after that. It, it basically... He becomes president of Yugoslavia, but Yugoslavia doesn't last very long. It breaks up into separate countries. But mine Alexei have finished up. They've left Belgrade. They're thinking that they're not going to ever need to come back. But Mai has some loose ends that she wants to tie up. Namely, if you'll remember from the first book, she was hunting down war criminals from Balkan civil wars. She had a list of people who had attacked her business's outpost, refugee relief outpost, and captured some of her employees and put them in a rape camp. Now, these rape camps were real. I unfortunately did not make that up. And she has sworn that she's going to bring the people who did that to justice, the leader of which is a man named Janko Janic. And she almost captures him at the beginning of book one, but he escapes. And so now she has some new information that she's obtained from an unlikely source. So with this new information, she goes back to hunting this Serbian war criminal. And this is where we're going to pick up. And we have a we have a character from book one, a Lieutenant Raske, who reappears. So let's go ahead and, and start with that. And Justice for All, Chapter 31. No one goes home before justice arrives. Focha, Bosnia-Herzegovina, 
October 2000. German Lieutenant Minno Roske moved among his men, assuring, checking, cautioning. Their answers were as clipped and precise as his questions. He had little to worry about. They were old hands by now at hunting down and capturing war criminals in the mountains and valleys of the Balkans. Raska had accepted the irony of hunting war criminals. His grandfather had been jailed as one after World War II. That war was ancient history to Raske. As a modern European, he was shaken and ashamed of the amount and extent of war crimes committed in the Balkans. The work he and his men did bolstered his sense of justice served. Each time he drilled his men for the next mission, he felt righteousness buoy him and hoped he imbued his men with the same. Still, in silence, he apologized to his now-dead grandfather, a man he remembered never smiling. Raske's captain stood with the spotters, who aimed their high-powered scopes on a small house at the end of the street. They'd taken over, in secret and at night, an abandoned school half a kilometer away, hiding their two armored vehicles inside a crumbling gymnasium. The spotters scrutinized every male on the street and compared what they saw in their scopes to a photograph of a man in a paramilitary uniform, a rifle balanced on his hip like a triumphant hunter. At his feet lay a stack of human bodies, his booted foot atop them. The great Serb hunter with his trophies. Roski took a turn around the open foyer of the school to make certain no one was smoking or talking too loud. The walls held a few reminders of the days when all Serbs, Orthodox or Muslim, attended classes here. Most of that had been spray-painted over with pro-Serb graffiti. His men were resting, but not idle. They readied their equipment, spoke in whispers, or ate rations. Raska was confident they would be ready at a moment's notice if someone spotted their quarry. His gaze fell to the only woman among them, not one of his men, but a U.N. person they'd worked with before, though he hadn't seen her since the spring. She kept herself in a quiet corner, away from the men. She was dressed in RAF, BDUs, and body armor. No U.N. helmet for her. She wore a U.N. beret. Sitting with her back against a wall, her eyes were closed as she listened to music from a Walkman via headphones. Her fingers tapped a rhythm on her thigh. Roski had never seen her dressed any way except as a warrior. Her face was a pleasant one, though she seldom smiled. Since their failure to nab Yanko Janic in the spring, Roski's unit had continued the hunt, scoring several arrests, though no big names. When she reappeared a few days before, she'd made a point of congratulating everyone on that. 
Her return meant they once again hunted Janich, here in Focha, where he was supposed to be hiding in plain sight. Leutnant, came the captain's soft call. Roski went to the observation nest and stood at attention. We have a possible sighting, the captain whispered and motioned to a pair of high-powered binoculars on a tripod. The lieutenant bent down to peer through them. After refocusing, he saw two men at the front of the house they'd watched all night. One man blocked a clear view of the other. The man with his back to them flapped his hands as he spoke, a ubiquitous Turkish cigarette tracing a wreath of smoke about his head. He wore a jacket, but the other man didn't, as if one were leaving and one staying at the house. We think the man without the coat is our target, murmured the captain. Get the UN woman over here to confirm. Somehow the woman sensed Roski's approach. She removed the Walkman's headphones, standing to meet him when he reached her. He read the cassette's label, Rob Zombie, a favorite group of his, and he recognized the song bleeding from the headphones, Spook Show Baby. Appropriate. Considering Roske had figured out long ago, this woman was a spy. She raised an eyebrow in inquiry. Roske whispered, we have a possible, and we need you to confirm. She shut off the walkman and stowed it in her duffel. At the spotter's nest, she looked through the binoculars a long time. Both the captain and Roske used their field binoculars to watch what she saw. The two men were still there, still talking, one still blocking the other. Several minutes passed, and the woman muttered in English, Come on, come on, move aside. The captain replied, It has to be him. Same height, same build. I need to see the face, the woman said. The man blocking the other must have shifted because the woman's spine stiffened. That's him. That's Yanko Janich, she said. You are sure? the captain asked. I can read the tattoo on his forehead. Sergut, let's move the captain ordered. With the Teutonic efficiency my Fisher had often derided, but secretly appreciated, the German soldiers in the special unit fanned out to secure all approaches to the house. Janich had gone back inside, and the other man was nowhere to be seen. In the minutes before dawn, the streets were quiet and empty. As the bulk of the force fanned out around the house, Mai, the captain, Lieutenant Roski, and four soldiers went to the front door. The captain's idea. He thought if given the chance to come peacefully, Janich would. As quiet as the Germans had been, the presence of so many armed soldiers first brought people to their windows, then to their open front doors, finally out onto the street. The police emerged from their barracks, sleepy-eyed and unarmed. A distant siren had the police scrambling back inside for their gear. The police, Mai said, we don't have time to negotiate now. 
the captain signaled to two of his men, who swung a battering ram against the door, popping it open. Shouts and screams from inside joined general protests from people in the streets. Mai held back and let the soldiers enter first. In passable Serbian, they shouted that no one should move and to put their hands up. Mai rolled her eyes at the awkward phrasing and repeated the order in her better Serbian as she entered. A young woman began to scream curses at one of the German soldiers, and his attempt to placate her had no effect. They all stood in the largest room in the house, the living room. An old man sat in a chair and stared out a window, oblivious to everything. The red-faced woman spewed spittle as she screamed. Janic, smiling at the scene unfolding, lounged on a sofa in a casual posture, legs crossed, arm draped along the back. "'Take her out of the room now,' the captain ordered. Mai suspected this was Zata, Janic's sister-in-law. She wouldn't cooperate, and it took two soldiers to handcuff her and drag her, still screaming, toward the front door, which now hung by a single hinge. Zata shouted at Mai, "'Whore! Bitch!' She spat in Mai's face, and Mai spat back. That silent Zata momentarily before she began to wail and weep and shout more insults. One of the soldiers clamped a hand in its thick glove over her mouth, but Mai could still hear the muffled screams. Mai wiped her cheek clean with the back of her gloved hand and stepped forward for Janic to see her. The smile left his face, and he shot up from the couch. He stepped toward her, stopping only when a soldier intervened. Tuta, Mai said in Serbian, I told you I'd find you. The old man stood up from his chair by the window. It is time to feed the cows. I must not be late to feed the cows, he said, shuffling across the room. All the soldiers shifted their attention to him, assessing him as no threat, and Janich took advantage of the distraction. He bolted for the rear of the house. The captain and his remaining two soldiers dashed after Janich. Mai pushed the lieutenant away from following them and shouted, No! But she, too, headed after them. The house's kitchen opened onto a rear courtyard, hemmed in on all sides by a fence the only exit a wooden gate at the far end. Mai reached the door to the courtyard to find Janic in the middle of it, the three Germans in an arc before him, their guns pointed at him. Janic held a Russian grenade. Bloody hell! What's the German word for grenade? she thought. Behind her, the lieutenant shouted, Granat! The blast cut Janic in half, took down the three Germans, slammed Mai across the room, and blew in every window on the rear of the house. The captain had been badly wounded, leaving Lieutenant Roske in command. He ordered the remainder of the unit to leave the school with the armored vehicles to reinforce them at Janic's house. The two hulking armored and armed vehicles did more to quell the angry crowd 
than the soldiers pointing their rifles at them. The police had never re-emerged from the barracks. Mai's ears rang, and a trickle of blood wouldn't stop coming from her nose. How to explain this to Alexei? Let's hope, she thought, it clears up on the flight home. When the German medics removed the last of their wounded, Mai took a small digital camera from a vest pocket and walked up to what was left of Yanko Janich. The smell of blood and ruptured bowels filled the air, but she breathed through her mouth as she took pictures of his deceptively placid face. She backed up and took one picture, encompassing both halves of his body. At her side, Lieutenant Roske was pale and sweating. If you need to get out of here, the villagers are about to break out the pitchforks and torches. Mai suppressed a smile and pocketed her camera. She said something in Serbian aimed at Janic's body and followed the lieutenant to an armored car. The Germans had released Zata Janic, who knelt on the ground wailing and crying, surrounded by women trying to comfort her. When she saw Mai again, the insults resumed, but Mai ignored her and climbed into a vehicle. When the white-armored personnel carriers with the letters UN in black rolled down the street and picked up speed, Mai removed her beret and tucked it beneath a strap on her vest. With her sleeve, she dabbed at her nose. What was the extent of the casualties? she asked the lieutenant. All three will live. The captain may lose an arm. The old man, poor bastard, has a nasty gash from flying glass, but he'll be all right he replied, sighing heavily. "'What's wrong?' Mai asked. "'It would have been better, yes, to take Janic alive for the trial.' "'It's still justice,' Mai said. "'Sometimes you take it. Any way you can get it.' The lieutenant nodded, and Mai's nose began to bleed again. He handed her a pristine, precisely folded handkerchief. Mai thanked him and pressed it beneath her nose. Now that you are back, Rasky said, we will hunt more of these bastards, yes? Big names? This was my last one, Mai replied. Frowning, Rasky asked, but why? A loose end tied up for the culmination of my career. But what will you do now? A few weeks beyond her promise of no more missions, She'd already regretted it more than once. No one, not even Alexei, had explained in satisfactory detail what would come next, and that pissed her off because she disliked not being in control. I'm going home, Mai said, to rest, to relax. And then what? But uh, you had to get Janic first, yeah? Yes. But he was not a big name. Why him? Because I couldn't go home without that bit of justice. Another nod and another frown. What did you say as we left the house? You know Janic's tattoo on his forehead, the one that read, I was dead before I was born, I replied. The Serbs are superstitious, so I cursed him, you might say. 
Oh. I said he should have died inside his mother and spared us all. She sensed Roski had more questions, but she quelled any by leaning back and closing her eyes, letting the vibration of the APC's engines lull her into a doze. Chapter 32 And Justice for All Belgrade, Serbia, August 2001 Mai was glad to see Club Dragul had changed little in a year and had weathered the upheavals in Serbia. There was no more Yugoslavia, yet things hadn't managed to get simpler. The music and the raucous crowd brought back memories of the year before, some good, some she didn't want to relive. Alexei thought she was in Dublin at a business meeting with Euro Enterprises, but when Oleg Dmitrov had contacted her and said someone might have something she was interested in, her retirement-dulled psyche jumped at the chance for some action. Nelson had been sympathetic and agreed not to advise Alexei of Mai's temporary reactivation. And now she was back in Belgrade, perhaps to finish a mission that ended positively but not satisfactorily. She passed up the offers to dance and headed straight for Oleg, where he leaned against the bar chatting up a girl who could be no more than 19 if Oleg were lucky. The girl was almost plastered against him. He was close to his score. Maya adopted a stern look and walked up behind Oleg. I might have known you'd be here, Olejka. The young woman gave Maya once-over, saw no need for concern, and glared at her. You said you were working, Maya continued, making her voice quaver. But here you are. Little Dima is crying for his papa, and sweet Katya doesn't have her medicine because you drank away the money for it. The girl turned her glare on Dimitrov. You didn't say you were married, pig. She snatched her purse from the bar and tottered away on her fuck-me-pumps. Not funny, Maia, Dimitrov said, but a smile played on his lips. Russians enjoyed a good practical joke. Don't worry, Mai said. She'll be back in a forgiving mood after a few more drinks. Dimitrov shrugged. Oh, there is always Rohypno. Can I buy you a drink? Not after mentioning Rohypnol. No offense, Maya, but I don't like worldly women. He looked over her all black out. I see you didn't give up the spy stereotype. When in Belgrade? I thought the white streaks in your hair gave you a certain bad-ass look. Why did you cover them? Because I'm so worldly and have a husband who might start thinking 19-year-olds are appealing. Oleg laughed and drained his drink. That will never happen. Your pussy has sufficiently whipped him. God, how I love Russian small talk. Can we move on to why I'm here? Okay. There is a member of the secret police, and don't ask me which one, because it's all a mess now. He wants to make a deal with you. What does he have to deal? 
told me enough I knew it would interest you. Like what? A connection between a certain person currently in custody in The Hague and the murders you stopped last year. Mai snorted and switched to Russian. Etolovishka? No trap, Oleg said. How sure are you of that? He has a young daughter with leukemia and needs money for a bone marrow transplant in Vienna. Oleg shrugged again and said, I have looked into his eyes. He loves his child. His price? Oh, you can afford it. Fifty thousand dollars. Jesus wept. I don't want the Holy Grail. Maia, Oleg said, crossing himself. Bajalsta, do not blaspheme. How do I know I'll get something worthwhile? He said he had proof, but fuck, Maia, that's the price of a car for your granddaughter. Are you bargaining with the life of a child? I don't know why it surprises me when Russians get sentimental at the oddest times. Where is the bastard? In a private room in the back, number three. I will watch for my office. And you were so sure it wasn't a trap. A final shrug. Like you said, the Russians are sentimental. The profession of the young man standing in one of Dmitri's private gaming rooms was hard to disguise. The severe crew-cut and muscular body made his civilian clothes look out of place on him. He looked naked without his weapons. Though he was maybe thirty, his face sported some residual acne, but his gray eyes were piercing, showing wisdom beyond his years. No, that was the typical Serbian self-centered arrogance and confidence in his supposed superiority. His scrutiny of her was swift, his recognition instant, as was hers. Mai closed the door to the gaming room and approached him, staying out of his reach. A poker table stood between them, cards and chips stacked on it. I know you, Mai said. January last year, the Crown Plaza Hotel. More than a year later, Arkin still came into her life at the most inopportune times. Once again, she was in the same room as one of his killers. She was glad Oleg watched, though if the thug were here to eliminate a witness, Oleg would never make it in time. The man neither confirmed nor denied her memory, no matter she knew the truth of it. You want to see me? Mai said. His hand moved toward the inside of his overcoat. Slowly, Mai said, her hand beneath her own coat, on the butt of the new Beretta she still wasn't accustomed to. He nodded and eased his hand behind his lapel and withdrew something, which he held out to her. Mai nodded to the poker table, and he put the object there. A photograph of a child. A cherubic face smiled at her. Mai knew the child was a girl only by the fact she wore a dress. The child's head was bald, and her pallor and hollow eyes evinced some fatal illness. And yet she smiled. The man in the picture with her smiled too. The man across the table from Mai. She is almost four, he said. The doctors here say she won't make it to four and a half without a bone marrow transplant, which 
they cannot do. They did determine her mother is a close enough match for the transplant. The private hospital could do it, but I do not have the money. Mai said nothing, and the man picked up the photo, returning it to his pocket. Last year, he said, I know you stopped some murders by stopping the mercenaries who had been hired to do them. I also know you never made the connection between those killers and Milosevic. I can help you do that. Mai had always suspected Cassandra Brown had had the cover or at least some protection from the secret police. If this man could prove that, Mai would give him double his asking price, but she couldn't appear too eager. For a price, of course, she said. He didn't like the sarcasm in her comment, and his eyes glittered with anger, an expression she'd seen before. It is not for me, he said. It is for my daughter. A visit to a cancer ward, a picture with an anonymous child, Mai said. I am going to take out my wallet, he replied. She nodded, her hand still on her weapon. His wallet was a long, flat affair. He tossed it onto the poker table, and Mai picked it up. She flipped through the plastic photo holders, pictures of the man holding an infant, of a little girl at various ages, of the child in the first picture but with all her hair, of the little girl with a pretty blonde woman whom the girl resembled. "'My wife and my daughter,' he said. "'Now, I suppose I could have contrived those as well.' But if I were here to kill you, I would have done so by now and be at the bar having a drink. Mai closed the wallet and flipped it back to him, smiling. You might have tried to kill me. I would have tried very hard. Whatever, Mai said, not interested in the pissing contest. What do you have for me? My fee? I'm not giving you cash. That taints the evidence. What I will do is arrange to have your daughter and her mother taken to a hospital in London for the transplant. Your wife will be able to stay nearby during her and your daughter's recovery. My wife and me. I can get the compassion to leave. That's fine. You and your wife get an all-expenses-paid vacation while your daughter gets a chance to live. What do I get? He unbuttoned his overcoat held it open for her to see there were no weapons. He pulled up the sweater he wore beneath the coat, and Mai saw a blue, standard-sized file folder tucked into his pants. That he pulled free, took the top sheet of paper from it, and handed it to Mai. She almost sighed. She was going to have to learn to read Serbian better, but she scanned the sheet of paper, understanding enough to know what she had the first page of a surveillance log on one of the prominent murder victims. This isn't enough for me to judge how useful your information could be, she said. He set that file on the poker table, removed his coat, and turned his back to Mai. Again, he lifted the sweater. Four more file folders were taped to his back, each of them at least an inch thick. That explained the oversized sweater and the baggy coat. After he removed them all and lined them up on the poker table, he hunted through one and took out a photo, 
Mai took it from him. Oh, but this made it worth lying to Alexei. A photograph of Cassandra Brown with Milosevic's head of intelligence, Dushko Bogdanovich. How did you get this? she asked. My older brother, Midan, was Bogdanovich's bodyguard for a while, but all his predecessors had met early deaths. Midan, he wanted, uh, how is it called, insurance. He planted a camera whenever Bogdanovich met with the woman in the photo. Was. After the announcement last year that agents of NATO had used mercenaries to kill government officials, Medan was sent back to his police unit. A few weeks later, he was supposedly killed in a shootout with some mafia. I do not believe in coincidence. Neither do I. So this really isn't about your daughter. It's about blood vengeance. The man shrugged and said, You get all this, surveillance logs, midan photos, his notes on what Bogdanovich and the woman talked about. You're a trusting soul, Mai said. This is only half. The rest is yours when my family and I are on a plane to London. Don't bargain with me. This is more than enough for me to leave your daughter an orphan if I so choose. That is not your style. You are the angel of Bosnia, after all. My daughter has done nothing except have me for a father. She had no say in that. Much like she did not have a say about drinking water polluted by depleted uranium from NATO smart bombs. And in all the villages you cleansed, all the children there did nothing wrong either. His eyes went to the floor, and when he looked at her, she might have seen regret. I can do nothing about the pest. I can do something for my daughter. Mai gathered the file folders and said, Can you leave tonight? Mai had paid the manager of a copy center a small fortune to let her stay after hours and make copies of the file she had with her. At four o'clock in the morning, she sealed the last of a half-dozen thick envelopes and boxed up the originals. In her neat British school handwriting, she addressed the envelopes, four to local journalists, among them B-92, the radio station which had had a hand in overthrowing Milosevic, one to the lead prosecutor at the World Court. The sixth went to a woman whose husband's murder had initiated the spate of killings Mai and Alexei had stopped. The woman was also a journalist, like her husband, but she'd get some solace in knowing exactly who was responsible for making her a widow. The originals would go back to the directorate with Mai, when her plane returned from London later today. She spent the moments before dawn mailing one envelope to The Hague and hand-delivering the others. The remaining box never left her side. Stanimir Atelyevich, as Mai had predicted, had dragged his heels on replacing many of Milosevic's appointments, including Bogdanovich. But he'd have to withdraw support when those pictures hit the media. Atelyevich would hope to get away with firing him, 
but his arrest would soon follow. It would happen all because Cassandra Brown had held fast to her warped principles and protected Bogdanovich even as she lay dying. And Mai had learned something new. A secret policeman's love for his daughter and his family honor meant more than nationalism. Atelyevich would be embarrassed for certain, but he'd recover, even if he might not have much of a country left to govern. Perhaps all of Milosevic's victims, from the high and mighty to the low and oppressed, would rest a little easier beneath the soil of the former Yugoslavia, in graves known and unknown. Mine knew she'd sleep better at night, and with a clearer conscience, and there was that ever-elusive thing called closure. Someone in the Serbian renewal movement had once said, all for justice, justice for all. That seemed even less elusive now. And she would go home, to Alexei. They would go together to settle Natalia in for her senior year at Harvard, and she and Alexei would spend a few days together in New York City. Mai would go look at some real estate for a planned expansion of the Euro Enterprises offices at Number 2 World Trade Center. No more missions, merely a normal life closer than it had ever been. And she looked forward to that. All right, let's take a quick break here for commercial. As I said earlier, the entire trilogy is now available as ebooks and paperbacks. The ebooks, you can get all three of them for under $12. That's like half the price of a hardback book. Maybe four or five dollars cheaper than, you know, a well known author's paperback. I've always tried to price my books more reasonably than my competitors, such as I am a competitor. So you can find them on my Amazon author page, which is author, no, sorry, amazon.com slash author slash Phyllis Duncan. The paperbacks, all three of them are around $40. And again, if that was one paperback, it would be around 160,000 words. It would be a good size. I'm sorry, I meant hardback. It would be a good sized hardback and probably right around that price, $35 to $40. So it's a bargain. I don't buy hardbacks and I don't buy many paperbacks anymore. Again, I've said this before, I don't have the storage in my house anymore. I, every bookcase I have is full to the gills. So I mainly collect books now on Kindle. So the Kindle price for the three books is a bargain, under $12. And eBooks you can also gift to people you think you might be interested in them. So just in time for your holiday shopping, there they are. There's commercial. 
I'll just again briefly mention that in February, a standalone novel is coming out called Love, Death, and I'll talk about, about that more a couple of episodes from now. I want to get back to reading the conclusion of And Justice for All, including the epilogue, and even though this is rare, I'm going to read the uh, afterword because it contains some interesting follow-up to the whole story in the three books. So let's get back to the conclusion of And Justice for All. Chapter 33, Epilogue, Full Circle, Belgrade, Serbia, March 2003. Somehow, my Fisher was alone among the dead in Serbia. Not the first time, but unexpected all the same. The forest of headstones told her stories as she passed them. A young man dead before his time, a woman and her infant dead on the same day, an old man who'd seen both Tito and Milosevic come and go, a partisan from World War II. All Serbs buried beneath their names, unlike so many of their victims. That told a story, too, one she shared with them. And there was the story told by the newest marker, a temporary one. The death was too fresh for a permanent one to be ready. Mai could envision what it would look like, a picture beneath glass of a handsome man with a brilliant mind, the hint of a smile trying to belie the formal portrait. She didn't need to read the name on the temporary marker to know who this was. The grave was strewn with flowers, some withered, some fresh, and she added the one she carried to the collection. Zoran Djindic, the first prime minister of a democratic Serbia-Montenegro, lay at her feet, buried now for two weeks. Mine knew she had a small, inadvertent part in putting him there. When she'd had to deny him the backing of the U.S. and Yugoslavia's last presidential election, Prime Minister of Serbia had been the consolation prize. She'd told him to find a paramilitary unit to back him, and he had, but he hadn't picked well. A new mafia-free Serbia under Djindic was less appealing than the bribes offered by the bosses. To the press, Djindic was assassinated because he'd cracked down on crime. But Mai knew it probably had more to do with the fact Djindic had been the one to put Milosevic in the custody of the world court. This was one murder in Serbia, however, that wasn't in vain. Instead of devolving into a figurative political and literal bloodbath, Serbia-Montenegro had united in mourning the cosmopolitan Djindic. No one had taken to the streets in violence, but had done so with linked arms in respect for his shortened life and unfinished work. For once, the police responded to the public's will and rounded up the usual suspects, including some for other crimes not associated with the assassination. 
the strong arm of the secret police suddenly found it had no immunity from a country's desire for justice. Mai's intuition told her that somehow from his plush cell in The Hague, Milosevic had ordered the death of the man who'd put him there. This wasn't a wild guess. When police went to question Milosevic's wife and children, they discovered the family had suddenly fled to Moscow. The Serbian government started extradition procedures, and Serbian prosecutors flew to The Hague to question a suspect, Milosevic himself. More justice to come, and that was good. Mai took a flask of plum brandy from her coat pocket and took a generous drink from it. She set the flask among the flowers, an Irish gesture for a Serbian friend. It was worth it, Zoran, she murmured. But you knew that. I'll witness the rest of it for you. Rest in peace. A movement caught Mai's eye, and she was glad she was no longer retired and that the Beretta Alexei had given her rested at the small of her back. A man and a child strolled through the cemetery toward her. The child, a little girl, skipped beside her father, her hand in his. Snippets of her chatter reached Mai on the breeze. She looked to be six years old, the man in his early thirties. He wore a business suit, an overcoat open over it. The girl wore a bright blue winter coat over a blue dress and matching tights. Her short hair was lemon blonde, thick and dancing about her face in the wind. As the girl got closer, Mai saw the healthy flush on her cheeks, the strength in her skipping steps. It took a moment longer to recognize the man. His hair had grown out and had been trimmed in a neat modern cut, something trendy but businesslike. Mai understood now why she'd been followed since she arrived. The former secret policeman who'd betrayed Bogdanovich stood before her, Jinjic's grave between them. The little girl smiled at Mai. Somehow I don't think this is a coincidence, Mai said. All hardness and cruelty had left the man's face, emphasized when he smiled at her. No, it is not. I never knew how to thank you for what you did for Yanala, so I asked a couple of my friends in the border police to let me know when you came back to Belgrade. Since she only traveled under one of a number of aliases, she realized the Serbian border police must have a photo of her on file. How much would it cost her for that to disappear? The man laid his hand atop the blonde head at his side, naked love in his expression. This is Janela, he said. Mai smiled at her. Well, hello, Janela. The girl smiled back, showing her missing two front teeth. She's healthy, Mai asked. Completely. It was amazing how she bounced back. My wife deemed it a miracle and renewed her interest in church, but... I know who is responsible. I'm not certain I'm comfortable with the comparison, but I think Yanela had the most to do with it. She is a strong girl, and I will get to see her become a strong woman. That can change a man. 
Do you believe that? I believe people can change, if they want to. The man leaned down to his daughter. Yanala, go play over there, so Daddy can talk, he said, pointing to a memorial to World War II partisans. Stay where I can see you. Yanala waved goodbye to Mai and skipped over to the memorial, a blue fairy against the green grass. I am changed in many ways, her father said to Mai. It was not only to thank you for Yanala. I needed to see you because... He paused. Mai loosened her fingers and looked around, seeking anyone suspicious. I am alone, the man said. I am alone, the man said. I said I am changed. I have dealt with things on my conscience. I don't see you in jail, Mai said. It was with a priest. I am a car salesman now. Which was worse, Mai wondered, being an outright killer or an any means to assail shyster. Yanala has a little brother, he continued, and all I want is a quiet life. Don't we all? So, you're here because of something on your conscience you didn't confess to a priest. I warn you, I don't dispense absolution, and I'm not asking for any. His hand came up to his face and swiped a line of sweat from his upper lip. That American woman who met with Bogdanovich and the Russian who worked for her delivered Ivan Stambolich to me and three other policemen in my unit. He paused, his Adam's apple bobbing with several hard swallows, more like gulps. We shot him and buried his body beside the road. Stambolich. Bloody hell. She'd almost forgotten him. In the time since witnessing his kidnapping, life had presented other priorities. Why tell me now? she asked. Because now I cannot go to the police, not with the witch hunt going on. I can tell you, and you can tell the police and hide your source. It's not really my concern anymore. The man's eyes flicked to his child to check on her. Satisfied, he looked again at Mai. I have told you, as payment for what you did for my daughter. It does not matter to me if you go to the authorities or not, or if you do, whether you tell them it was me. My former comrades will protect me. Your bout of conscience is because you don't want to get caught up in the net cast for Jinjic's killers. You are the most cynical person I have ever met. Thank you. I had no part in Jinjic's killing. I left the police after Yanala came home from the hospital. I supported Zora and his reforms. After all, I want the Serbia free of crime lords for my family's sake. What does my motivation matter? It doesn't. You said it. I'm a cynic. Where is Stambolic? He gave her the name of a village and a road number in northern Serbia adding descriptions of landmarks to help locate the body. Who gave the kill order? Mai asked. The woman, but it came from Bogdanovich, according to my brother Midan. 
That tidbit wasn't in the material you gave me. I guess he was afraid to write it down. He told me. But we both knew who wanted Stambolich dead. We do indeed, my thought. Did you do the shooting? We all did. He looked at his feet, his face flushing. Not long after was when Yanola got sick. He crossed himself. He looked up at her. I hope you can give him proper funeral. Her anger, always not far below the surface of her civility, emerged. How fucking magnanimous of you. She waved his retort away. What kind of cause do you sell? All kinds. Are you good at it? Yes, I earned the most commissions of all the salesmen. Too bad you weren't in that business in 2000. I managed to destroy several cars while I was in Belgrade. You'd have made a fortune off me. He frowned, perhaps unclear about the change in subject. His eyes strayed again to his daughter, who'd found a small tree branch and now held it aloft in imitation of the memorial statue where partisans in bronze held up their rifles in triumph. Why do you bring up my work? he asked. Small talk. We must do small talk. What? That's what Arkin said to me, not long before you shot him in the face. The man sucked in a breath and backed up a step. He looked again toward his daughter. Mai turned her back to him and walked away. Wrapped in a blue tarp and buried below the frost line, Ivan Stambolich's body had retained enough substance the tentative identification was almost certain. Mai herself recognized the gym shorts and T-shirt he'd worn the morning almost three years ago when she'd witnessed his kidnapping. She could visualize what had happened. His hands tied behind his back, his killers would have made him kneel on the tarp he would have known he was about to die. At least they hadn't tortured him with that knowledge. Two shots, one in the back, one in the head. He died quickly. But the remorseful policeman had lied to her. Two shots, not four. Except, unlike how she'd been trained, sometimes human beings deliberately missed. Mai knew Stambolich only from the intelligence on him and surveilling him for a few days. She suspected, however, he hadn't begged for his life. He would have known his killers came from the secret police, and he would have known who sent them. What a final thought to have before dying, that a friend, a man you'd loved like a brother, someone you'd mentored, had betrayed you. Had he had the time to feel anger or disillusionment? Would he have regretted ever burdening his country with the likes of Milosevic? My hoped he'd cursed Milosevic, and in this superstitious country, people would have believed Stambolich's curse had sent Milosevic to a cell in The Hague. The police loaded the putrid remains into the back of a morgue van, and there was nothing more for Mai to do. 
This had begun with a man murdered in front of her. It had ended with what she hoped was the last in a long line of senseless deaths in Serbia. She wasn't optimistic. Another election crisis loomed, and without politicians with Djendjic's ability to create coalitions, the parties who still followed Milosevic stood to gain ground. She'd come full circle, but so had Serbia. Some things never changed. Damn it. She turned her back on the pitiful, now empty grave and got into her rental car. On the drive to the airport, she felt light, as if some burden had left her. She felt a certain satisfaction as well. This would be added to the list of Milosevic's crimes, and he'd never see the light of day again. No freedom for a man who denied it to so many. She'd spent a lot of the past decade in this country. She'd left much behind. Some of her honor, her blood, and Alexei's. A child she'd lost. Things she'd never get back. This was a promise she could keep. She would never set foot here again. She pushed the Balkans completely from her thoughts. The End Begun January 2001, Alexandria, Virginia Concluded August 2020, Stanton, Virginia Afterward, Walls Do Not a Prison Make First, let me say that while self-inflicted wounds is based on real events in the Balkans in the 1990s and early 2000s, I've taken a great deal of dramatic license. I have used the real names of people who are deceased, but with a few exceptions, I have changed the names of people who are still alive. The dramatic license was necessary because despite my research ability, there were details I couldn't confirm but I can assure you the events and proclivities I portrayed here have basis in fact. And yes, I'm aware Upsale 2000 was in Norfolk, Virginia in June 2000. I was there and on board the real Ukrainian training ship. Rather, June didn't fit the story's timeline, so again, dramatic license. Also, I have researched Serbian customs and culture to the best of my ability. I humbly apologize for any errors. The same for the multiple layers of police jurisdiction in the former Yugoslavia. It took many years of searching, but a 2001 UN, of course, report on ways to improve policing in Yugoslavia proved invaluable. Still, if what I've presented doesn't quite reflect reality, Again, let's call it dramatic license and move on. And here's the biggest irony. In the year 2000, the United States and Yugoslavia both held elections. The world assumed the U.S. elections would go as smoothly as they always did, and that the Yugoslavian election would be rigged as usual. Who knew the Yugoslavians would get it right? 
and that the U.S. election will always remain under a cloud. So let's talk about the other elephant in the room. What did happen to Slobodan Milosevic after his defeat in the 2000 election? We in the West, particularly in the United States, are accustomed to the concept that when you're imprisoned, your rights end. Wardens and guards control whom you see, what you read, whether you're allowed to have pen and paper. They set a limit on how many family photographs you can have. There is the rare instance where a crime boss or a cartel capitan continues to oversee his criminal enterprise from a cell. No doubt, assassinations have been ordered with a specific word in a letter to one's spouse or in a conversation with one's lawyer. And if you've been sentenced to death, you have no control over the day you die. That's determined by the governmental entity that prosecuted you. Unless you're Hermann Goering or Slobodan Milosevic. Milosevic would never have received the death penalty. The International Criminal Tribunal for the Former Yugoslavia, ICTY, didn't use it. Serbia would never have sentenced to death a man too many people still revere as a hero. Bosnia or Kosovo might have killed the man whose words and actions caused their people so much loss and grief. No, Milosevic's trial, which had grown protracted, from his constant machinations, he was a lawyer after all, would have resulted at most in a life sentence, served in a prison where he would have had access to a fitness center, a library, a movie theater, and a personal barber. His beloved wife and children would have been allowed for visits unless they happened to be under indictment themselves. It would have been a prison life far removed from what Americans expect for criminals. However, the prospect of life in prison was too much for the Serbian strongman's heart. On March 11, 2006, guards found him dead in his cell. An autopsy revealed he died of a massive heart attack, not long after his plea to recess his trial until he could be treated at a cardiac hospital in Russia, the only medical facility he trusted. His family and ardent adherents blamed the ICTY for either denying him medical treatment, not likely, or deliberately inducing a heart attack by withholding his heart and blood pressure medications, equally unlikely, or by poisoning him, beyond unlikely. The whole point of a war crimes tribunal is to exact justice under the rule of law, not act like the defendants, not use an international court for blood vengeance. Personally, I believe Milosevic was determined to control not only his own fate, but also to cause his prosecutors acute embarrassment. I think he opted not to take his cardiac medications, allowing nature to take its inevitable course. Such arrogance goes to pattern. Yes, Milosevic died in a prison cell awaiting the completion of his trial for war crimes, but he died in a bed 
creature comforts around him. That cannot be said for the victims of massacres he ordered, victims numbering in the tens of thousands. The survivors of those massacres, the ones who lost their homes and much of their families as a result of those massacres, have to live out their lives with the knowledge his crimes went unpunished. A bitter pill, to be sure. Despite pleas from Milosevic's family and the urging of Serbia's main ally, Russia, Serbia refused Milosevic a state funeral, though it did allow a farewell ceremony. His wife and son left exile in Russia to attend the simple service in Milosevic's home village, Podzarovic. He was buried near his parents, who had both killed themselves. An ignoble inn for a man who privately reveled at his nickname, Butcher of the Balkans. An unnamed relative swore that on that first anniversary of Milosevic's death, the relative would return to the grave and strike it with a hawthorn stake to assure Milosevic would never rise again. We shall see. All right, there we are, the conclusion of the trilogy, Self-Inflicted Wounds, Book Three, and Justice for All. It was quite an adventure writing this. All the research I did, the frustration sometime in the research, but this is something I'm extremely proud of, and I hope people enjoy reading it. So until next week, stay safe, wear your masks, socially distance, stop the spread, and remember, if you have to go out, keep an eye out for spies. This has been a production of Unexpected Paths Radio. Copyright 2020. All rights reserved.